Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of the Gospel of Mark. We'll discuss two more parables that relate to the parable of the soils we discussed last week, as well as why we should not have fear as Christians. So if you'll open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, verse 21, we'll begin our lesson. Okay, let me open us up in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day and for this group. And as we continue our study of the Gospel of Mark this morning, I just ask that you take these parables that Jesus is going to be teaching us this morning and use them in a way that can really energize our faith, that can help us to continue to grow and help us to realize why you have us here. Father, just put on each of our hearts, what is the purpose of us being here and how do you want to work in and through each one of us in order to help build the kingdom. We all want to be available, and we're telling you right now we're willing to be made available. Just put that on our hearts and show us what you want us to do. It's going to be difficult for some of us, but Father, you're an awesome God, and we want to do what you want us to do. I ask you to speak through me, speak through others who speak up, continue to mold us into the people you want us to be, and I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to continue the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. We're going to pick up where we left off. We left off in chapter 4, verse 21 last time, so that's where we'll pick up. And what we're going to see, we're going to dive into some additional parables this morning. The parables beginning in verse 21 through 32 are really parables that show us as believers that we do have a responsibility to proclaim Jesus' message of salvation to others. As I mentioned last time, just to help recall that, parables reveal truth to those who are seeking it, and it actually hides the truth from those who don't seek it or those who reject Jesus. Parable actually means throwing alongside. That's what parable means. And so it's an analogy that you then put yourself into the story to help you better understand what Jesus is trying to reveal to us. So that's what these parables are all about. So let's begin in verse 21. And he, that's Jesus, and he was saying to them, a lamp is not brought to be put under a peck measure, is it? A peck measure is under a basket or under a bed. Is it not brought to be put on a lampstand? And so Jesus is saying that those who have received the light were not to hide it, were to let others see it. Let me show you a verse real quick where Jesus said this and just bring a little more clarity to it. It's over in Matthew 5, verse 14. I'll go over there real quick. Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, again, under the basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So our light is our good works that are done with integrity so that others see God working in and through us. We're not to hide our faith. We're to shine it out to others so that others want the peace that we have. It's not to bring glory to ourselves, it's to bring glory to God and to direct others towards Jesus Christ. We reflect the light that God has given us. So let me go back over to Mark 4, and I'll pick back up in verse 22. For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it should come to light. So Jesus is saying that while he teaches in parables, he's telling us 
that we are to proclaim the gospel to others, not keep it hidden. This is Jesus calling us to evangelism. That's what we're called to do. That's why he leaves us here. That's why we're not zapped up to heaven as soon as we place our faith in Jesus Christ. That's his plan. Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life for 30 years, poured himself into 12 disciples for three years, bore our sin on the cross, was buried, resurrected, and left it with the 12 disciples, and then they've poured into others, and now we're to do the same. That's his plan. That's how he's building his kingdom, and we all have a role to do. But at the same time, what an honor. Verse 23, he says, If any man has ears to hear, let him hear. So we're to be a diligent and fruitful hearer of his word. Listen to what he's telling us to do and then do it. Verse 24, And he was saying to them, Take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it shall be measured to you. And more shall be given you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. So let's unpack this a little bit. Certainly, as we read last time about the seed and the soils and what have you, remember the culture at the time, they understood farming. Farmers could expect that they would get back from their crop what they put into it. And those who share the gospel and spread the seed they're going to receive eternal rewards in abundance. That's what he's saying. He's saying, listen carefully. Listen carefully and act upon it. And then use the truth that we've been given to attract others to Jesus. Those who dispense the truth that they received, they'll be given abundant reward and joy. They'll be given even more. That's what he's saying. Those who only have a superficial, shallow belief, they're going to be exposed, as we saw in the parable that Jesus taught last time. And we sure don't want to be in the position where he said in Matthew 7, 23, where Jesus says, I never knew you. Let me show you another parable real quick that I think actually helps us understand whoever has to him will more be given and whoever does not have, that'll be taken away from him. If you go over to the right to Luke 19, and let's look at that parable. It's Luke 19, and I'm going to begin in verse 12. And this is Jesus talking. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called 10 of his slaves and gave them 10 minas and said to them, a mina, one mina is approximately three months wages. Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And it came about that when he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that those slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him in order that he might know what business they had done. And the first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. He's not boasting. He's just giving credit to the master saying, Master, you gave me a lot. This is what I did. This is what I went and did with it for you on your behalf. And this just shows that he was obedient. And look what the master says to him in verse 17. And the master said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in the very little thing, being authority over ten cities. So he got a big reward. But now, because he did well with the gifts that he had been given, now he's been even given greater reward. And now even he's called to greater service for the Lord. 
This is what we'll do in the millennial kingdom and into eternity when we are given our rewards based on what we did with what Jesus has given us now, our opportunities and our gifts. When we stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ, not for our salvation, but I call it our performance review, this is what we'll be given. We'll be given authority over something based on what we did with what was given to us in this life. Let's read on, verse 18. And the second came, saying, Your mena, master, has made five minas. So this is like the parable we saw last time. Not everybody has the same opportunity. This one was given five minas, and he made only five minas more. Verse 19. And the master said to him also, And you are to be over five cities. Verse 20. And another came, saying, Master, behold, your mena, which I kept, I put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. So this is really showing this guy's heart towards his master. He actually accuses his master of being a thief and violating laws. He certainly doesn't have any love or respect for his master, you can see. He really hated him. And he did nothing of eternal value with his life. He just hid it in a handkerchief. This is the typical belief of a legalistic religion. Rather than God's grace, they believe God is a tyrant who forces us to obey for his own pleasure and cheats us from what we really deserve. And this is somebody who wants to do it their own way. And that's how he viewed his master. Verse 22, and so the master said to him, by your own words, I will judge you. Look, he says, you worthless slave, meaning you've been totally unproductive. He says, did you know that I am an exacting man taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Jesus doesn't really agree with the description of him, but he's saying, since that's what you chose to believe about me, then I'm going to judge you on that system that you believed. Jesus is calling him a worthless slave, not a believer. He had absolutely no respect for his master. He was more interested in his own self-interest He had no relationship with the master. He didn't care about the master's interest. And he certainly didn't care anything about what the master had entrusted in him. Verse 23, then why did you not put the money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. So the master's even saying, why didn't he even at least let someone else do the work? If he had any respect for the master at all, he could have easily done that. Verse 24, And he said to the bystanders, take the minna away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. So you can see the little bit that this guy had, it's being taken away and given to someone else. Verse 26, I tell you that to everyone who has shall more be given, but from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. So he was stripped of everything. And this really represents those who claim to follow Christ. They go to church, but they have no personal relationship with him. They serve their own goal and their own purposes. We can either use the gifts that we're given and make progress, or we're going to lose what we have. If we're Christians, it's going to impact the rewards and responsibilities we will have in eternity. If we're not a Christian, we're going to be stripped from everything. In fact, look, it goes on and says in verse 20, but these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Probably talking about those in verse 14 
where it says his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. That's probably who he's referring to here, the Jews and other unbelievers. So everyone falls into three categories. They're either faithful followers and rewards in heaven and responsibilities into eternity is what they will receive. You've got false followers who will be exposed and rejected. And then you've got foes who will get retribution and lose their physical and spiritual life and they'll have eternal separation from God. So I think that's very telling in what we're reading. Let's go back over to Mark. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Let's pick up where we left off. We're going to pick up on another parable here. It says, and he was saying, this is Jesus, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the ground. It goes to bed at night and gets up by day and the seed sprouts up and grows how he himself does not know. The earth produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So what is this parable talking about? This parable is sometimes referred to as the seed parable. Man is to sow the seed. That's the word of God. And we are to sow the seed, the word. But then we are to let God do his work to allow the seed to grow. Man has nothing to do with making the seed grow. The sower of the seed isn't involved at all in that process of the seed being transformed and coming to life. So as Christians, we are to sow the seed, but it's up to the Holy Spirit to bring about regeneration and transformation. We can't take credit for it. We never take credit for people's conversion. We have nothing to do with it other than to sow the seed. It's the Holy Spirit's job to then have that seed actually take root in the heart of the other person. So we are just to sow seed. I love that because it takes all the pressure off of us. We can sleep at night just like this sower of the seed. Even if people reject the gospel, they reject us, they reject our story of how we were converted, that's okay. We can sleep at night. Only God can change their heart. That's not our responsibility. But one thing that we do see in verse 29, evangelists and Christians, we do get to celebrate when people do come to faith, even though we had nothing to do with it. We'll celebrate as we reign with Christ. We'll have eternal rewards. We'll be there reigning with Christ and giving all glory to him. All right, let's go to the next parable. Verse 30, and Jesus said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God or by what parable shall we present it? He's going to give yet another parable. Verse 31, it's like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the ground, though it is smaller than all the other seeds that are upon the ground, Yet when it is sown, grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. Okay, let's unpack this one a little bit. What this one is saying, Jesus is telling us that the sharing of the gospel is going to start very small and grow into something big. In fact, if you go look in Acts 2.41, There were like 3,000 people who came to believe after the initial 120 came to believe in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. So it went from 120 to 3,000, and then there were thousands more after that. So it started small, started with the disciples, started small, it's growing into something big. And then if you look at the last part of verse 32, it says, So that the birds of the air can nest under its shade of this mustard seed, it starts small, 
the kingdom of God is going to provide security and blessings to believers. So let's pick up with verse 33. And with many such parables, he was speaking the word to them as they were able to hear it. And he was not speaking to them without parables. We talked about that last time. If you didn't hear that, go back and listen to the lesson, the recording from last time where I explained why Jesus was using parables. It says, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. So Jesus was teaching the disciples what these parables meant. We're blessed as Christians because we have the Holy Spirit to explain these things to us and help us understand. Let me show you a couple of verses on that. First, I'll take you to 1 Corinthians 2.10. And it says, For to us God revealed them through the Holy Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts and spiritual words. But a natural man, that's an unspiritual person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises, or your translation may say discerns all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So it's the Holy Spirit that helps us understand Scripture, And then let me show you one other. Let me take you over to 1 John 2. 1 John, that's not the Gospel of John. That's the Epistle of John. All the way back just before Revelation. 1 John 2, verse 27. It says, And as for you, the anointing, referring to the Holy Spirit, which you received from Him, abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you But as his anointing, meaning the Holy Spirit, teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. I've got lots of verses. Those are a couple of verses that show the Holy Spirit who lives in us. I talked about that last lesson. If you weren't here, you can go back and listen to that. We receive the Holy Spirit who indwells in us as soon as we become Christians. The Holy Spirit is who teaches us. So let's go back over to the text. I left off at verse 35. And on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. So after a long day of preaching on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, they now head for the eastern shore. They were in the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. Going over to the eastern shore, there's not really any major cities over there. So they thought they would at least get some quiet from the multitude. Verse 36, and leaving the multitude, they took him, being Jesus, along with them, just as he was in the boat, and other boats were with him. So what we're going to see, Jesus is going to perform another miracle. He performs so many, in fact, that even in the Gospel of John, the Apostle John wrote in chapter 21, verse 25, there were so many miracles that Jesus did. All the books in the world can't contain all of them. There's no way to even write them all down. But the Jewish religious leaders, they still wanted to kill Jesus 
even though they had seen all these miracles, they never denied his miracles. They claimed that he was able to do these miracles through the power of Satan. They never denied his miracles. They refused to believe him, and they wanted to kill him. Let me just show you that real quick, and then we'll go back and finish out this text. I'll show you in John 5.18. There's so many places it says that. I'll give you some of the other verses as well. John 5.18 says, For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, meaning Jesus, because he, being Jesus, not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So they wanted to kill him. They never deny his miracles. But Jesus is going to perform this miracle. Oh, a couple of other verses if you want to go look at them that are like that as well. You can look at John 8, 59, John 19, 7. And if you want to see some verses where Jesus claimed to be God, you can go look at, I'll just stay in John. You can look at John chapter 10, verse 30, John 12, 45, and John 14, verses 9 through 10. I've got lots of other verses, but if you just want to look at the ones in John. So let's look at this miracle. They're over in the Sea of Galilee, and I've been there before. It's called the Sea of Galilee. It's really a lake. It also has a number of other names. Sometimes in the Bible, it's called Lake Genesaret. Sometimes it's called the Sea of Chinnereth. It's also called the Sea of Tiberias. It's about 13 miles long by 7 miles wide, and it's about 690 feet below sea level. It's beautiful. It's fed by the Jordan River. It is the lowest elevation freshwater lake in the world. I've been there. It's beautiful. I got to go out on a boat. I got to eat fish out of it. In fact, there's still fishing there today. There's very steep hills and cliffs on one side of it, which causes these strong and violent winds and storms and floods to come down. And as the air cools as it comes down and descends from the higher elevations, that cooler air collides with warm air on the lake, and it gets very, very rough, so it looks like a sea. That's where it gets its name. So they're in this boat. They're going over. You can see there's other boats. So these other boats have other people coming along. They're not all believers. You can look at that in John 6, verse 66. Many people who were followers of Jesus, most of them didn't believe. This boat that he's in most likely is a small fishing boat, probably owned by either Peter, Andrew, James, or John. Remember, Peter and Andrew were brothers, and James and John, that's the Apostle John and the Apostle James, not Jesus' brother James. They were brothers, and the four of them were partners in fishing business. They had left their fishing business to follow Jesus, but they still had their boats. And you can see that in John chapter 21, verse 3, as well as in Mark chapter 3, verse 9. So they still had their boats. Verse 37, and there arose a fierce gale of wind. See, I told you how this wind can just start coming up as the cool air descends from the mountains and collides with the warm air off the lake. And the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. So this boat is filling up with water. Jesus is going to show all of them, even those who were not yet believers, Jesus is going to use this to show his divine power. And he's going to do that to try to help move them into saving faith. So the situation is, it's at night, it's dark, there's these strong winds, the boats are filling up with water. Now remember, these are seasoned fishermen. 
They're used to seeing bad weather on the Sea of Galilee, yet we're going to see they are going to panic. So it must have been a really violent storm. Let's look and see what happens. So that's the situation, verse 38. And he himself, that's Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Okay, so Jesus is tired from a long day of teaching. He is at peace. He is trusting in God. He's not worried about it. He's resting asleep in the back of the boat. And the disciples awake him and they say to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? So they were pretty scared, even though they are very accomplished and seasoned fishermen. In fact, if you go look at the same account in Matthew, some of them calling Lord, in the Gospel of Luke, some of them calling Master, but they had fear and they had doubt. They thought they were about to die, even though they had seen all these miracles that Jesus had performed in their presence previously. Verse 39, And being aroused, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. You can read, there's a bunch of the Psalms talk about this. You can look at Psalm 65, 5 through 7, Psalm 89, 9. Let me take you over and show you Psalm 107. The Psalms are about in the very middle of the Old Testament over to the left. I'll go over there real quick. If you want to go over there, I think you'd really like to see this. 107, and I will begin in verse 23. It says, Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, these are fishermen, they have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. And he spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. So you can just imagine the boat going up and down the waves as it's filling up with water. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wits' ends. So this is a picture of them just being tossed around in the boat. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still, so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet. So he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. That was written hundreds of years before this situation, that this miracle that Jesus did in front of them. Let's go back over the text, verse 40. And Jesus said to them, Why are you so timid? How is it that you have no faith? They knew Jesus had the power. They had seen it. But their lack of faith was exposed. Jesus was testing them with this storm. And he was teaching them that, They could trust him, even in dangerous circumstances. Let me give you a couple of verses that I think might be helpful to us here. I'm first going to go to Hebrews 13. That's to the right, maybe in about the almost the middle, a little more than the middle of the New Testament. And I'll go over there and read that to us. Hebrews 13, and I'll begin in verse 5. It says, Let your way of life be free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. So we should be content. Contentment comes from being happy with everything that God has given you, knowing that everything you have, God gave you. Discontent is not being happy with what God's given you and wanting more, thinking you deserve more. So he says, be content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. 
so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what shall man do to me? So we should be content at peace no matter what's going on. God is with us. The Holy Spirit is living inside of us. That's all we have to know. We should always be content even in the worst of circumstances. Then I'll take you over to 1 Peter 5, 7. From Hebrews, just go over to the right just a little ways and you'll get there. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. When we are fearful or afraid, that exposes that we don't have strong faith in Jesus Christ. We don't think that God's in control. We don't think he's got this. It exposes our lack of faith. And then the last one I'll give you is Romans 8.38. Romans is just after the four Gospels and Acts. Romans 8.38 and 39. It says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So nothing can separate us. We should have unshakable confidence in God's love and unshakable confidence in our eternal salvation, even in the face of trials and difficulty and any terrible, dangerous circumstances. Okay, let's go back over to Mark and I'll finish out. And they became very much afraid. These are the people in the boat with Jesus and said to one another, who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. So they realize that the creator is in the boat with them. And this really scared them even more. They knew that only God could have that kind of power to calm the seas. And you know, their reaction was similar to what we read in the Bible from others who had tremendous fear when they saw God. You can look at Abraham's fear in Genesis 18:27. Job had fear talking to God. That's in Job 42, verses 5 through 6. Samson's father, Manoah, fell on his face. That's Judges 13, verse 22. Isaiah had fear in Isaiah 6, 5. Ezekiel had fear. That's Ezekiel 1, 28. Daniel had fear. Daniel 10, verse 9. Peter had fear. You can look at Luke 5, verse 8. Paul had fear when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. That's in Acts 9, verse 4. And the apostle John had fear. You can look at that in Revelation 1, verse 17. They had fear because they just had this awe that God was in their presence. And I think when I stand before Jesus, after I die or I'm raptured out, I think I'm going to probably have the same reaction, falling down on my knees and face, just in awe of the God of the universe being right there. But let's not forget, we have the God of the universe right now living inside of us. So let me kind of wrap this up. When you look at the three parables that we had, the one from last time being the parable of the soils, and then the two parables that we had in the first part of our lesson today, I think they all paint a picture for us. The parable of the soils, that told us that there's going to be different responses to the good news of the gospel. And we discussed that at length last time. There's basically four responses to the gospel. And Jesus told us why. Then we came in our first parable that we saw today, the parable of the seed. And that teaches us that God will produce the fruit and the growth from our sowing. 
We're called to sow and then leave it to God and the Holy Spirit to provide the growth. That's not on us. And that should give us real peace. That's not our job. That's not our responsibility. And then we saw the parable of the mustard seed. And it's through the word that it starts very small, but it's going to grow into something large and beneficial. And that's our job. And what an honor that we all have that we've been selected by God to participate by being an instrument for God to work through to bring others to faith. What an honor and what a joy. Finally, as we closed out our lesson today, we shouldn't have fear in our trials. That exposes our weakness in faith. We should trust in Jesus and we should have no fear when we trust in Jesus. And let me just give you two verses on that. First one I'll read to you, Philippians 4, verses 6 through 7. And it says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. So we should pray and give thanks to God for everything that He's given us. It says, Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we should have tremendous peace. When we're worried about something, our worry shows we don't trust God. All we've got to do is say, God, give me the strength. I trust you. I know you're here, and I know you're going to get me through this. And then the last verse I'll show you is 2 Timothy 4.18. That's over to the right of Philippians. And that says, The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So I hope this lesson has helped us all today to realize that we do have a job to do. We are called to plant seed. And what an honor it is that God has chosen us to do that as part of his kingdom building. All we've got to do is just say, I'm willing to be made willing. I don't know how to do this, but I'm willing. Would you just put someone in my life and show me how to do this? And if any of you need help, don't understand, don't know a way to go about it, just give me a call or those listening, you can reach out to me on my website. I would be happy to help get you started because that's what we've been called to do. And finally, we shouldn't have fear. No matter what we're going through, God wants to use that in a positive way to impact us, to impact people around us as they see our tremendous peace and faith even when we're going through trials. I've said it many times. Don't ask why. Don't ask why, God. Why are you putting me through this? Ask what. What are you trying to teach me? Thank you for joining us today. Larry would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to Larry at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this weekly podcast and Larry's weekly blog at LarryO'Donnell.com. We hope you will join us next time as we continue our study.